Hello and welcome to the Mind Your Leadership Podcast. Today I will talk with Andrew Schaefer, called the Walton Monk. Andrew is a speaker, entrepreneur, and a business professional integrating high-performance business results with a commitment to personal and professional development. Andrew is an MBA from the Walton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has built a career in wealth management while training for over 10,000 hours with world-leading meditation teachers and Buddhist monks over the course of 30 years. So it will be really interesting to see how we blend this two aspect in his life. So stay with us. Great to be with you, Andrew. As a former Buddhist monk and a, a Wharton MBA degree, I'm really interested to hear your path and your journey, to learn from your wisdom and your experience, what was insightful for you, insightful moments, what impacted you, and how you combine these two worlds between the East and the West and how you bring it to the day-to-day. So, Thank you for having me. It's, it's funny because I think that's what my... My particular journey is about <clears throat> is about integrating these ancient practices with full integrity, but in the context of modern life, mm-hmm. uh, in you know having a career, having a family, uh, and this has been going on for thousands of years. It's not like I'm the first person to do this, but I had the great fortune of meeting uh, some very senior Buddhist monks at a time in my life in my early 20s, when I was looking for something, I was dealing with the stress of school. I saw my mental ability due to stress decline. Mm -hmm. So I think we've all had that. We're in the middle of an exam and our mind goes blank. Now we know that's like a stress response. And if you can somehow calm your, you know, stress, calm your mind, then you can regain your full intelligence and wisdom. And if you let the anxiety continue to build and feed on itself, oh my God, I'm forgetting, I'll never remember, then you're gonna perform worse and worse. And so having lived those two experiences multiple times like we all do, Mm -hmm. I had the good fortune of meeting somebody who could train me in the higher development of the mind. In, in ways that I had never learned in a more traditional Western education system. And so when I met this person, it was, you know, Im- immediately apparent they were probably the brightest person I had ever met. And I've been around a lot of bright people. Mm-hmm. And they were had a practice that they went to for themselves and that they taught others. And that practice allowed me to increase my own capabilities. I think that's the simplest way of saying it. If instead of getting reactive and getting angry and frustrated and walking down that path, all of a sudden I had a tool that I could recognize what was going on, uh, kind of regain some poise and balance in the midst of it, and then take the necessary steps so that I ended up in a better place 
rather than a place filled with regret and agitation and disappointment. So you're talking about a specific practice. Can you share with us what was the specific practice you are talking about? Yeah, I mean, the practice is so simple that it's incomprehensible that it's effective. We do the practice, and the practice very simply is you recognize wherever your attention is. The special kind of potent part is we give it a label. We recognize it through a label. So very simply, um, the practice, which let me just say, it is so uh, seemingly obvious that it's incomprehensible that it has any potent effect. Um, and I have spent years doing this exact practice. And almost every time at the beginning, I'm like, what's the point of this? Because there's no way that this has any real impact. But the practice is to start by simply recognizing where your attention is. That can be on thoughts, worries. It could be in the body, on our breath. And we label. So if the rising of the abdomen, if our stomach is expanding and moving up, we give it a simple label, rising, which of course covers many different phenomena the movement, the pressure, the stiffness, all these things. Likewise, with the falling, we'll feel a relaxation, an ease, a subtle movement, and that we would label as falling. And we use this also for mental phenomena, so thoughts and planning and worrying and, and all the stuff that fills up our, you know, our work day. So you talked about it. It's interesting. What are you, the practice that you're talking about I also use it as a categorizing practice that you need to listen to your inner life and see if it's a thought, feeling. Okay. So a lot of people do do something similar. And the distinction is, you see, when, it, when you go back to the kind of psychology of it, in any given moment, there are two aspects of our experience. Mm -hmm. There's the trigger and there's the knowing of it. Right. So and the trigger can be physical. Yeah. It can be cold or heat or stiffness or tension or pain, or it can be mental thoughts and feelings and planning. So that means every given moment, every this is an important distinction. Every moment has these two aspects to it. Now, some the knowing of a thought is two mental elements that are arising together. So it's mental and mental. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, physical and physical. We go outside when it's cold. The outside is cold. The body becomes cold. There's the knowing of the cold, but that's influenced by the outside. So there are these different interplays and aspects. But every moment of experience has the knowing and the, the, the kind of the trigger or the base element. And so... For the practice to really start getting powerful, continuous, and strong, we need those moments of noting to be as continuous as possible. So for a lot of people, they do this, what I would call intermittent noting. So they kind of, they're grappling with something, it's a doubt, it's a worry, it's an emotion. They start to get a little clear on it, oh, I'm worried, oh, it's fear, and then they move on letting go of that technique of labeling, doing their kind of more normal operation, method of living. 
in this particular practice, though, we don't let go of that technique. And so in the process of constantly, even now, reaching, moving, like a, there's an awareness that's going on as I'm moving my hand and speaking. As that continuity builds up, it brings with it certain powers, certain capabilities that aren't possible if there isn't that level of continuity. I want to prick your brain. I don't understand it clearly. Because it's obvious that, yes, we need to, when we practice in my course, the categorizing meditation, you know, we need to mention, okay, now I'm feeling a thought, an emotion, a sensation. I give it as a metaphor, like our closet of our clothes, right? So we need to know what's in there. So it's a technique to understand it's, for me, it's not really a classical meditation. It's like a technique to get in contact with our inner world, to understand what's going through me. It's emotion, a sensation, a thought. But at the end of the day, it's not a meditation practice. It doesn't help me to clear my mind and be present. It helps me to understand more fully my inner world and then work with it. And you're saying that when we practice this kind of practice and being connected to what we are going through right now, it helps us in what way? You understand my question? Yeah, well, firstly, you're developing, let's go back to the basics. Every moment we are generating experience and our ability to experience that directly with, without kind of biasing it is arguably the most challenging task of human beings. So we all experience things, and again, it's our misinterpretation that frequently causes so much, so many problems in the world. And so the whole point of this practice that I trained in, which is what I understand to be kind of like the most important element of the Buddha's teachings from 2,500 years ago, is that coming to moment-to-moment awareness of how this mind-body process actually works without distortion Mm -hmm. is the fundamental path to awakening or liberation or freedom or true happiness. Because again, because now you're able to see the way things are, and respond accordingly. So one of the kind of understandings that starts to unfold, and I I think this is not talked about enough, it's well documented, but in modern day practitioners, you don't hear a lot of it. The stages of progress, when you take a practice that can produce these and practice it consistently and effectively. And so the first kind of understanding when you start trying to label everything that you're experiencing and in your mind and in your body is that, wow, everything I'm paying attention to in this domain is either mental or physical. That's kind of like the lights go on because you're spending all this time trying to pay attention and label. And all of a sudden it clicks for you like, oh, actually talking about categorization I can either categorize these into mental stuff or physical stuff. And so that becomes crystal clear for an instant in a moment. But it's very grounding. It's very clarifying. It's very energizing because you're like, ah, now I know what I'm doing. Before I was sitting in this murky mess with my eyes closed, not knowing what what I'm really doing or who's, you know, how it works. Now I've got a moment of clarity like, ah, this is the the work that I'm actually doing, it's constrained to either this mental or this physical experience. The next unfolding of understanding that happens when people practice in the systematic way is they have a moment, it's almost like a flash of lightning where you see the lightning bolt, but it's a moment of seeing cause and effect. Ah, there's dryness on my mouth that leads to the thought or the desire to drink, and then I reach my arm, grab the drink, and drink. Without the intention the rest of those activities don't happen. I have the thought, 
maybe it's an image in my mind, maybe it's a picture of something downstairs, that then leads me to stand up and go downstairs. Without that image of, oh, I, you know, and all that's contained in that image, oh, I've got to pick up that paper I left down there. As a result of that image, then all of that other activity follows. It's cause and effect. It's not me dominating or controlling. It's, it's actually a, a lot less control of this process. We see an ice cream, then we start having thoughts, hmm, maybe I should get an ice cream. Without seeing an ice cream, we don't randomly start having thoughts like that. So, or maybe, again, maybe it appears as a thought rather than an image. But the point is there's some trigger that leads to some resultant. And so much of our life is like this. And so now we shift from I am Andrew, I am in charge, I'm going to get it my way to this is a system of cause and effect. Things I put in produce results totally shifts how we start operating in our lives. So it's actually like Viktor Frankl said about mindfulness, it's the space, it's enlarging the space between the stimulation and the response. This is what actually gives us the free choice to choose our behavior, right? Instead of being managed by our thoughts, emotions, and the situation and the stories that we are telling ourselves. Actually, you're saying that you mainly practice this kind of meditation? That's interesting. I didn't know it's a crucial practice. I knew it as a kind of a practice. There are a lot of people that are spending 70 years of their life spending doing this practice you know 20 hours a day uh-huh. this is like the, the hardcore like the people I've met that are the most hardcore because there's a beautiful you know it's interesting from beginners to again the most intense people there's something an accountability to it you know when you go in to interview with your teacher and they ask you what did you experience how did you label it what happened all of a sudden the stories that oh I was seeing lights and I was flying off you know all the crazy stuff or all of the stuff that's not necessarily directly verifiable is no longer reportable mm-hmm. and we start to see how much our mind is imagining things and how much we step away from the directly observable reality to thoughts you know, uh, beliefs and this other basically imaginary world. Uh Uh, And so this keeps us honest. This keeps us tethered very closely to see. And and we we start to, what I started to see after many, many years, again, it doesn't sound very profound. It's a shame it took me 30 years to figure this out. But basically, anytime we're not directly observing, we are making it up. And by directly, you mean by this specific practice, or I can also have a focus meditation or open awareness meditation or various kinds of meditation. Are you talking specifically about this practice? No, what I'm saying is, again, to me, focused and open awareness meditation, these are both aspects of mindfulness. Westerners have created two forms of practice out of one mental quality. It's the old analogy of the elephant. Somebody touches the tail, somebody touches the trunk, somebody touches the ears. They all describe it differently. Mindfulness, there isn't, there really isn't open awareness and focused awareness. There is mindfulness. And part of the full spectrum of mindfulness is that sometimes it's precisely focused and, you know, intimately detailed. And other times we can be paying attention to our subtle movement of our breath and we can be fully aware of our full body at the same time. That isn't two different practices. That is, those are both different aspects of mindfulness, and it appears differently at different times. And so this, again, so yes, so if now you're paying attention, and the thing about the technique is, again, what's happening in those, the mind is going at a billion neurons per second, or in the flash of a second, right? So it is fast. 
there is a lot going on there. So even in our mindset where we think, oh, I'm really paying careful attention, we're actually not paying attention at the billionth of a snap of a finger speed. We're like the one second or two second or three second threshold. You know, very interesting. Early psychologists used to believe that human perception was fixed. They had like a constant for the speed at which they believed that the brain could process information or pick up information. And they gave these tests like on the millisecond, they would flash an image. And at a certain point, so if it was below the threshold of human consciousness, they would flash the image, but it was so fast, nobody would see it. And then they worked up until they found this, the speed at which people could see it. And therefore, that was the speed at which consciousness worked. Mm -hmm. Turns out, that was a huge mistake. The more people practice, the quicker they perceive. Mm -hmm. So what they thought was a constant for humans isn't a constant. Turns out there's a correlation between meditation practice and speed of cognition. So now people that practice more can see more quickly what's going on. So now you and I are actually potentially talking about two different time frames. On one sense, there's this yeah, in everyday life and based on an external framework, there's the I'm pretty regularly being aware and being mindful. But now we can go in and magnify what before seemed like one instant. Now we start seeing there are 100 million instants within what many people are thinking of as being one instant. And so now we're starting to dial in. And this particular technique of labeling helps us get closer to that microscopic level of awareness. Interesting. So it enlarges every sensation and emotion to a larger scale. Actually, for me, mindfulness is a state of mind in which I'm also connected to this specific experience that I'm going through. It can be a sensation and emotion and a thought and at the same time to the broader picture. And the ability to move between my personal experience and the broader picture enables me to choose my behavior and to be mindful to what I want to choose instead of being managed by the situation, by my emotion, by my inner world. So it's interesting. And you're saying is as you practice this specific practice, it enables you to enlarge your experience, your inner world, to understand really small peaks and not to see it as a one flat experience. Or to see both. There's yeah, almost like a movie-like part of it where you see the individual movie frames and you're able to watch the movie and you're able to distinguish between the two. And, and, and when you eliminate, like, it's interesting if you just think from a kind of a everyday perspective, if you are thinking and assessing and moderating, there's a, you're limited in terms of the speed that takes in terms of the skill. Now, what if the possibility that you could remove you from the equation and that capability that you're identifying with you, that capability to read, to assess, to respond skillfully, you could amp it up, disintermediate it, so you didn't need you moderating it. What if that became a full and effective force in and of itself that didn't require your mediation, and that's how you lived and what you led with? That's what high-level mindfulness is. Again, and it'll intellectually make sense because we know there's the talk of the the lack of self, right? Right. So now we integrate all these concepts. And when mindfulness is strong and powerful, that sense of self that is so often a bias that is superimposed on our experience and a distortion of reality no longer is a leading constraint. That leading constraint gets removed. And now mindfulness can move. Again, it's not you. It's not me. It's the power of mindfulness to move and adapt and respond 
effectively and quickly. And, and that's the state, that's the quality. And it's not a state. It's a momentary quality. It's like a, a spark that arises. But if we can keep feeding the spark and preventing the things that snuff out the spark, then that's where the practice is actually happening. So we spend more time feeding, nurturing, growing that ability and less time with the self-referential, the, the anger, the, the greed, the, the ill will that obscures that ability of, that we have inside of us. Okay, that really needs a lot of practice to be able to pull ourselves, or, you know, kind of our egos outside and to be fully kind of empty and full at the same time, you know, in a paradoxical way, right? What if I said there is no ego to put outside? That's a whole battle that you're creating. There is no ego. That's a misconstrued idea. So any, going back to what we were saying, any moment you are spending in direct observation, you are actually doing that. Okay, so you're t- saying that we shouldn't observe ourselves we just need to be fully in the situation without our thoughts and explore well no because we can't that's not sustainable so we need to pay attention we need to do the labeling but that is that is your end state and that is your beginning state mm-hmm. so that's how it will be with a little less weight when you get very skilled at this And in the beginning, when we're just learning, we take that same posture, so to speak. Yeah. And then along the way, these ideas, starting with the mind-body, starting with the cause and effect, and then the subsequent understandings that arise as we practice in this way, again, the more we spend paying a time we spend paying attention directly, then there's no room for these misconceived ideas to take root. And as soon as we stop directly observing and paying attention and we start to try and summarize or conceptualize or make sense of it, then we're blocking out the way things really are with our conceptual framework and we're starting to move away from the way things actually are. Okay, sounds really profound and I need to digest a little bit what you said. I want to take it to the business world. You're a coach and you work with executives and consultants. So my question is, how do you bring this state of mind, this profound wisdom to leaders, to managers in the workplace that speak the more rational language and, you know, not necessarily understand what you're talking about being present because they don't have really time now. They have a lot of things to do and they don't have time to practice this kind of housing and reflecting or being in the moment. So I'll be happy to you from your uh, wisdom and experience and what's the challenge in bringing this mindset to the business world well thank you I you know I think number one it's it's funny from the 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 part of it that I've never understood is I view it as simply my failure in communication is to me so obvious Goldman Sachs leading investment bank has spent billions of dollars on computers what are those computers to do they get data they get information and faster than anybody else. And now we know about these program tradings, like they're happening at millisecond and they're, they're making tons of money, small amounts of money consistently because they can see trends and move ahead of it in like milliseconds. And so getting information ahead of a competitor is considered to be a competitive advantage in business. Everything we're talking about here is getting information and actually a lot of the information is is inside of us, which maybe other people can see us better than we can see ourselves. But theoretically, we're in a good position to get this information about ourselves better than other people, faster than other people. And we know now, faster information makes money. Mm-hmm. So very simply, 
if we can learn information about ourselves, if we can use that same capability in understanding others, whether it's individuals, whether it's buying behaviors, whether it's how to manage and lead people more successfully, then we're going to be better leaders, better salespeople, create better products that fill a need that people want and that becomes very popular. So to me, it's incomprehensible that this skill set, this is the skill set of business. The thing is, is you don't have to limit. This is what business people are trying to do all day, every day, is trying to get more information ahead of somebody else or get a product out to market faster than somebody else or make their product seem more appealing. Again, get in the heads of a consumer before somebody else. So why don't we expand this a little, include the actual humans? It's like To me, it's just so obvious that this is the game we're playing in business This is the game the monks are playing in self-development, human potential, human awareness. Like, they're actually the same game, but they're in different arenas. One's playing with widgets, and one's playing with mental qualities that you can't necessarily feel, but now which neuroscientists can measure and document and and track. So that, before, again, it was a hubbubub, right? This guy with long hair who was probably somewhat smelly, smiling and telling you, you know, there was great experience to be had, the business people were somewhat skeptical to give up what they had worked so hard for to achieve and to build. And they got so much sense of who they were from that. But they're actually, to me, it's the same type of work. One's on a less visible spectrum than the other. And when you do the less visible spectrum work, we all know this, you have leaders who are inspiring, leaders who are kind, leaders like it's not that being mean and a curmudgeon and, and negative and antagonistic, that doesn't necessarily, some people do well with that for a period of time, then it tends to end. So it's learning how not to make people think you're soft or weak. And that's what was so interesting about the monks is, you know, these were fire and brimstone monks that were known for being tough. Before I went on my first retreat, people were like, don't go, this guy's brutal. Like, you, you won't survive. You're only 22. You're a beginner. Like, He's going to annihilate you. Uh-huh. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if the great my, the great Maha whatever was such a not a nice guy, I kind of need to know that. And, of course, he wasn't like that at all. That was how others projected onto him. First of all, I agree with you that today we work with our minds, right? So in the business world, I like the metaphor that you brought as companies that looking for information outside to see what the competitors are doing in order to increase their ability to produce a better innovative product. And you say, actually, instead of looking outside to the broader picture, maybe look inside. It's not obvious for leaders, for people. You know, we, I think we educated to look outside, to be in a competitive with our peers, with our uh, other companies. So we focused really outside instead of inside. And you say, why are we wasting our time? Because We have a lot of the answers in ourselves. If we just stop and listen to ourselves, to our teams, to our peers, to our clients, fine-tune our product and be innovative. We don't need to look so much outside. So it's not a common practice, especially nowadays in this hectic reality that we have a lot of uh, things that disrupt us. We really need to be able to nourish this aspect, focusing inside. And in a paradoxical way, it looks like a waste of time, right? Why should I be with myself, listen to myself? I need to listen outside to see what others are doing, to be in the doing mode, to run, because we need to, to deliver in time. Instead of pausing for a moment and really being present, sometimes from this pausing and listening, there can be epiphany, right? 
the solution can emerge without running after our tail in order to achieve our uh, goals. Or, yes, it's not a common nowadays, although mindfulness is really much more known practice than in the past, but still it's not something that we understand it fully, the impact on the uh, achieving our goals in a shorter period instead of a longer period. So when you work with exe- executive leaders, how do you combine this aspect this practice? Do you speak their language and you help them to understand the theory behind it? Do you practice being in the moment? Do they cooperate with you? What resistance that you experience from their connection with this mindfulness and Buddhist aspect? Yeah, well, again, I don't mention the Buddhist because it's, I mean, people know that about my background if they look at my background, but to me, it's irrelevant. I practiced, as I say, with these kind of hardcore Buddhist monks for five years, and it didn't occur to me that this was Buddhism because uh, there's nothing Buddhist about it. It's like, how do you sharpen your awareness and, you know, break down the, the mental bonds that are holding you back? It's just, again, seems common sense to me. Like, how am I, how am I going to live a little easier, breathe a little easier, and, and be productive? So it was self-preservation in one sense. And that's how I teach it. And again, going back to the accountability benefits of this particular method, like if a CEO were to give a task to a junior person, you know, go make this PowerPoint. And if the, the, the junior person came back and it was the fonts weren't right and the pictures weren't properly aligned on the page and it looked like a mess, the person would be like, what the hell? This is a mess. And because of the accountability of the practice, what did you recognize? How did you label it? What happened when you labeled it? And what happened next? It puts the CEO back in that beginner stage again. They're like, oh, I was paying attention to my breath and then I had a thought about work. Well, how did you note it? Oh, I didn't note it. Okay, we'll go back and fix that and then come back and we'll do it again. And so there's just this iterative learning. The difference here is this isn't being done to demean or humiliate somebody. It's being done because when they do this, there's immense benefit that they start feeling right away. And so they get that pretty quickly. So the carrot is there because when you do this effectively, you feel more relaxed. You feel better. You feel more energized. You feel more balanced. You know, going back to what you were saying so much of the language around mindfulness today is pause and slow down and and I, that irritates me because again i the tradition i trained in the buddha was a warrior he came like in in india which has this caste system the buddha was from the warrior caste think about that he was an amazing athlete he was good looking he was fit he was you know when it came to sports he was top he was like the guy then he brought that to to meditation it was like so i'm not going to settle at second best i'm going to succeed in this realm and so i think rather than a ceo feeling oh i got to step away from all these work and my business and my responsibilities and do this little thing about breathing it's like no let's take a moment when you were most contorted and wound up and you're feeling stressed and and you're like feel like this on the inside and then all of a sudden you notice that that's how you're sitting. Well, what are you going to do? You're just going to simply be able to release. It's it's not slowing, doesn't require slowing down. You just realize like this contortion isn't the most productive. And so again, through a natural desire to be the best at what you can be, you're going to let go of this unhelpful posture. And so then you're going to settle in and become more aware and and that's going to reset and reframe because if you're feeling constricted and tight and like this, you're going to perceive things a certain way. Ah, that hurts. Why are you doing that to me? Whereas if you're a little more relaxed 
And again, nothing changes except a mental shift in the moment when you're most constricted. And that's where the labeling can so help. Because in that moment of feeling this, you know, oh, I'm feeling tight. Oh, I'm feeling agitated. And those subtle notes start unwinding all of that tension and, and tightness. It's really the ability, as we are more present with our feelings and sensation, we can change our behavior in the moment. Instead, you say it because it's not actually... You need to pause for 20 minutes. You can be aware and change in the moment, the situation, right? You don't need to... But in that instant, you know, so there's a good example. There was a guy who <clears throat> was doing my program, and he was driving along in the morning at 5 a.m., and somebody was tailgating him. So he started to get really upset because what's wrong? Doesn't this guy know tailgating's dangerous? This whole story, fury, anger, rage. And then he started using the labeling. He had done a few weeks of my course. And all of a sudden, he started, let me start labeling. Labeled his breath, rising, falling. Of course, it was tight. And, and then he shifted to his mind. Anger, anger, judgment, judgment. When his mind went to what a jerk, doesn't this guy know? He, he labeled that as judgment. As soon as he labeled judgment, he had this huge epiphany. Because all of a sudden, he realized, first of all, he realized in the moment, he had no idea what the story was with this guy. Mm-hmm. This guy may have had an emergency. And instead of this guy being the inconsiderate jerk, Maybe it was himself who was being inconsiderate and a jerk because this guy had an emergency and he was like blocking him. So he pulled over. He had all the sense to do this, driving with his eyes opening, doing the labeling. This wasn't like, let me take a time out. It was like while he's driving, he's tuning in to what's actually going on. Pulls over, lets the car goes by, had a total epiphany that, number one, first of all, he felt great. Like, whoo, I have no idea whether I was right or wrong. I just did something nice. So that feels good. Number two, he realized prior to this, he would have been on his way to his next meeting, continuing that tirade in his head about that other person for an hour would have shown up so angry and so irritated. And in this case, he showed up totally happy because he had done something nice for somebody and released this whole framework of judgment. And then he realized he does this all day long. All day long, he's judging other people and getting upset. So he was like, my God, I'm making myself miserable all day, every day. And I can totally, now I see it's judgment. So now when I start to notice judgment, I know what happens. Judgment leads to my getting angry. If I can stop the judgment, I don't become numb or anesthetized Mm -hmm. to the behavior of the other person. But I'm allowed to possibly interpret it in different ways or recognize that my interpretation is one of perhaps many that might be appropriate. And that level of freedom and self-awareness he had never had before. So it was a game changer for him. CEO of small marketing company while driving to work. So that's why you don't have to pause. It's not about time. I mean, again, he learned the technique. He invested a little bit of time to learn the skill set, to practice the skill set to develop the ability. But then when you're sitting in a mirror, you know, in a meeting and you're getting agitated and ready to drive someone, that can become more about you than about the other person. So it's an amazing uh, story because it really shows that we most of the time live in our mind. And when we stop to reflect upon the stories we are telling ourselves, we can get out of the stories and out of the circle that we are in all day long and change our reality in a minute. So I understand what you're saying. You're really passionate about not disconnecting these two aspects because you say it's not disconnected. You don't need to be on a mountain in India to meditate. You, the practice 
practice is being in the moment, in the busy world, in the hectic world, and using it in the day-to-day to change our life, to change our business, to change our relationship with our spouses, uh, colleagues, or uh, whatever. So I'm really with you because I believe, you know, I, I had a thought that I don't need to be in India in a, in a high mountain to practice because my mission is to bring it into the day-to-day hectic reality. So this is really a challenge. Before we wrap up, I will be happy if you can give a tip for leaders, managers, individuals, what they can do differently in the day-to-day in order to get out of the stories beyond all the amazing examples that you gave and tips to conclude. Yeah, I think the, the biggest takeaway I try to consistently apply in my life and that I think other people benefit from too is to stop dismissing our own personal, what's happening to us or to other people we know as being one-off, unique situations, and instead to universalize them, to find the common element. If we're, I, I believe, if we're experiencing something, if we're feeling something, there is an audience out there that's feeling that. And mm-hmm. so we need then to take that, again, that information that's being made available to us and find the meaning and purpose behind it by turning, using our leadership ability to turn that into a, um, the way things are rather than this is only how it is for me. And this comes up, particularly when people are meditating, like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. I have too much on my mind. You know, we, we make excuses for why it's difficult to concentrate or why we can't why we don't have single-minded, one-pointed focus as if we had been living on a mountain for 20 years. Even though that's not our lifestyle, we're running this phonetic lifestyle, we're ashamed, we're embarrassed. People are very, you know, they feel humiliated that the simple task, pay attention to the rising of your abdomen. I mean, of all the busy responses, I just think it's so funny. You know, of all the big responsibilities we have, I've got to make important phone calls and negotiations and deals worth millions and billions of dollars. Well, can you pay attention to your breath for a second? No. And then we feel humiliated, so we don't want to see that. We want to get rid of it. And if people were just honest and recognizing that's how it is for now and, and have that level, whatever, they, whatever that phrase is for them or whatever that stance is, that posture is, for them to be able to accept it. Maybe it's like this for other people. Maybe this could be a learning moment, not only for myself, but for other people. I think that would be so powerful. And the, the self-judgment that so many people, you know, secretly carry around and blame themselves for and try to hide and think it's a source of weakness for them, mm-hmm. that becomes their sense of humanity. That becomes a sense of strength. And again, I'm not saying walk around with everyone, in, you know, with the wart showing, but on the other hand, don't pretend that everything's perfect and acknowledge the way things actually are and use your feelings are such a true, authentic, they're real. And so use that information, that as a competitive, not as necessarily as a competitive advantage, but as a, as a, as a tool to make the world a better place, to make yourself better, to be kinder to yourself and to understand that other people have that same sensibility. Thank you very much. When you talked, it's resonated within me. In my research, I found the dialogue space that if I'm taking it to the business world, when we, in order to enable new wisdom to emerge, we really need to be present in a conversation and to dare to show up what you actually say, to be vulnerable, 
to speak my feelings if I feel uncomfortable about a situation, to dare to put it on the table and say, look, I don't really understand. What do you think about it? And this is being a leader, right? Because usually when you don't understand, a lot of other people don't understand, but nobody has the courage to say, I don't understand because they don't know how people will look at them. So this is actually what I found and what I agree with you, the ability to really be frank and honest and be authentic and bring your full self to the conversation, to the workplace and dare to be vulnerable. And then amazing things can emerge and amazing creative solution can uh, show up from this conversation. So Andrew, it was a pleasure speaking with you and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. This was Andrew Schaeffer. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. You're invited to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook or other digital media platform. Till then, take care and bye-bye.